Good evening, everybody. How are we doing? I hope you all had a blessed day today. Uh, it's been an awesome camp so far. God has been good. I hope you've had the same experience. I, I really feel blessed for being here this weekend. So real quick, before we get into any of today's conversation, I just want to find out, based on what we've covered so far from yesterday to this morning, um, what has been re- resonating with you, if I uh, can have a few people just share what the Lord has been saying to you, what you're learning or what you're picking up, or what the Lord has emphasized in your life, just based on the sessions that we've had so far. So let's get some feedback. Anybody at all? What have you learned and what has God been saying? What have you heard? Because sometimes I'm up there thinking I'm saying something, and you might be sitting there hearing something else. So it matters to me. Yes, sir. Amen. That, that the Lord, the affairs on the earth, anything that happens south of heaven, God does whatever he does in, in, in concert or in partnership with somebody, with a human being. Amen. Nothing just happens automatically just because God wants it. He designed that as far as the affairs of the earth are concerned, somebody has got to partner with heaven to get anything accomplished. He says, I want to create a human family. He said it with Adam and Eve. He says, I want to destroy all of creation, but preserve the seed of, of humanity and the, and the gene pool of the animals. He had to find a partner in Noah. He said, I want to create an unbreakable nation, a nation that can never, no matter what, be broken. He went and found that through Abraham, and then he accomplished it through Jacob. He said, I want to come down and walk amongst them and, 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 and save them from their sin. He needed the cooperation of Mary to offer her womb. For Joseph to say yes to the assignment of raising a son that was not essentially his son. That was the son of God. And for intercessors like Simeon and Anna the prophetess mentioned in the book of Luke to pray for the coming of the Savior. He wanted to save the world from hunger. He needed the partnership of of, of Jacob's son called Joseph. Anything that God has ever done. He's always used human agency. And you know what? Anything the devil has ever done, he also uses human agency. The Bible calls him a murderer from the beginning, but I've never seen a demon kill anybody. I've seen people kill people. So he needs a human agent to carry out his nefarious activity. That's why we're in a contest, and a little bit of what we're going to talk about tonight is about this contest and what we call spiritual warfare. So you understand exactly the dynamics of what happens south of heaven. Amen. Thank you for that. Now, I was already getting ready to go. Anybody else? What, if, what else have you learned? Yes, sir. Repentance is needed. And, and this is important to talk about because I, this is the only, I, I, I believe in all record that I've, I've, I've kept, I'm, I'm a bit of a New, a New Testament um, you know, st- uh, student and a scholar. You know, the first 200, 300 years, I studied that quite you know, extensively for my master's and also a little bit as I was getting into my doctorate. But what I'll tell you is this. I absolutely believe that this is probably the first church age that thinks that we can get some kind of a breakthrough without ever coming to an altar where we repent before God. There's a dangerous message in the kingdom today 
that you don't ever have to repent. And I can tell why, because I was, I was debating with the Lord. I said, Lord, why would anybody ever say that? And something you actually mentioned, Reggie, when you got up and you said, um, you know, we're not under condemnation. Because here's the thing. The sense of condemnation is the most selfish and prideful reason to repent. If you repent because you feel condemned, you're repenting because you feel bad about the fact. No, you repent because you did something stupid. You understand? If you did something like, for example, even if you don't feel bad, but what you did hurt your wife, you ought to say you're sorry. Why? Because you did something that affected someone else a certain way. So what is the incentive for repentance? Because we violated the law knowingly. We've broken the heart of God in some instances knowingly. Now, guaranteed his mercy is, is for us, but because there's an infraction against him, part of you has at least got to feel that I need to make things right. I'm sorry, Lord, I did that. Please forgive me. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, part of the job of the Holy Spirit, you may have forgotten. I remember when I was in Bible college, you know, I, I, and I'm kneeling down and praying, and the Lord would bring somebody up and say, Felix, remember that time you said something? Did you see the way that sister's face changed? You offended her by what you said. You need to make things right with her. The job of the Holy Spirit is to say what? Something is out of order, son. Can you take care of it? And what does pride say? I didn't mean it. You know, I didn't mean that. So I'll just carry on. But what does true humility say? I need to go and say, listen, I may have said something that offended you. Please forgive me. It's this, the most healing place in God is a place of repentance. We love to quote Joel chapter 2 and 28. And it shall come to pass in the last days, I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But what we forget is that from verse 1 to around verse 12, it's talking about a radical act of repentance when the Lord says, tear your hearts and not your garments. Let the priest weep between the porch and the altar. And it shall come to pass afterward, after what? After the season of repentance, that I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy. The rules have not changed. Amen. Repentance is a beautiful thing. All my grace preachers and all my grace people, repentance is a beautiful thing. It is right throughout scripture. The bowing of the knee before the Lord is not a sign that you feel condemned. The bowing of the knee of the Lord is because you're knowing the Holy Spirit has just shown you you did something you shouldn't have done. It is decency, just common decency to make it right. To go to the one you've offended and say, listen, I, Father, I'm, I'm sorry. So what does David say in, 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 after the sin of Bathsheba? When it was pointed out to him, he knew who he had really offended. It was not just Uriah, but it was God. That's why he wrote Psalm 51, one of the most therapeutic psalms of all. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this terrible thing. Never once did David feel condemned. What did, what did he feel? He just felt that I have to make things right with God because I hurt the heart of God by my actions. It's a decent thing to do. What happens without repentance in the church? Ah, God help me, please. Jesus, help me. You remove that. You trace revivals. Find out what happened. I'll give, you, I'll give you a recent one. I'll give you Brownsville. Whatever you think about Brownsville revival. Let me tell you a little story from a very close friend of mine. I told you about Pastor Curtis Dean, who was the senior associate minister of the largest church in Denver, Heritage Christian Center. When they heard about the revival that was taking place in Brownsville, at Brownsville Assemblies of God, you know, he said, I went to my senior pastor and I said, listen, I just want to go and find out what's happening in that church over there. And the senior pastor says, listen, son, we get people saved at our altar every week. We've got revival every week. 
You don't have to go out there to find revival. We got revival right here. How many people do we baptize per week? Per month, they were baptized in 2530. Heritage Christian Center was amazing. But Curtis said, Felix, I felt compelled to go. So my pastor released me to go to Brownsville. He says, I went in there, and I just sat down in the order. I didn't tell them that I'm a, I'm a senior associate minister of one of the major ministries in the United States. I just went and sat in the audience. And he said, when that young lady began to sing, come running to the mercy seat, I felt a crushing presence of conviction of the Holy Spirit. He said, I had my born-again experience, senior associate minister of one of the largest churches in America. He says, when they took an altar call for salvation, I was one of the first to run to the altar because I've never felt that sense of God's holiness that wanted me to break myself in his presence. And he traces that day to the day that he made a true turnaround. This is a man that had been in ministry for years. Oh, when the Holy Ghost comes into town and men's hearts and women's hearts are turned toward God. He'll begin to reveal things you thought were nothing wrong. There was nothing wrong with that. You know? it was just, and all of a sudden, you're crushed under the weight of, of, of God's conviction. It's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's the working of grace. To be brought to the throne room of God, where now he begins to mend and you begins to heal as you pour out your heart before him. Every revival. The first and second great awakenings right here in the United States. Radical repentance. You understand? radical repentance. When Charles Feeney, Charles G. Feeney, that boy born in Warren, Connecticut, used to go into a city. Sometimes it was the preachers that were first to come out to confess their sins. Oh, I need to come to the Lord. Aren't you the preacher? Yes, I am. What's going on, man? I feel a conviction of the power of God. I need to get things right with God. Good. That's revival. We don't have to like what I just said, but it's still true. Amen? Good. I feel a pushback. I can handle it. I'm not here to be popular. Amen. I'm here to tell you the truth. Is that okay? David and his daughter. Anybody else? I'll take a couple more. Yes, sir. Say it again. Amen. The Lord hears the broken ones. There's no laziness. We, we cannot afford to be lethargic and be lexidaisical because, again, heaven's agenda is accomplished through the church. One of the things that worries me, I've, I've had this picture before, and in fact, fa- fairly recently, a good friend of mine shared with me a story. He was, um, he's the son-in-law of one of uh, the ministers. He's a bishop in, 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 in Boston who has the largest church in New England. And he says, Felix, you know, um, I was at my father-in-law's house and once a month or so, everybody gathers at his house. You know, he's got, I think he's got eight kids. So there's a ton of grandkids. He says, but the bishop and his wife do the cooking. So they'll cook everything for their kids and their grandkids. And all the children and grandchildren are just sitting around. Then uh, this guy is from Africa. They're American. So there's certain cultural things he began to notice. He said, Felix, I watched how after the parents had fed us, that he calls a mom who is his mother-in-law. He says, mom began to wash the dishes. And not a single one of the kids or the grandkids got up to help her. Not one. So after cooking for them and after feeding them, she begins to clean up and to do the dishes. And they were just lying around enjoying. So he, he, he got a little African, you know, uh, ticked off. And he said, well, why, why don't you people love this, this old couple? Said, oh, but we love you. We love you, you know, uh, granddaddy, we love you. He says, no, that is nonsense. That's lip service. How I know you love 
is when you extend yourself in service for them. You recognize that they just fed you. You can clean up after yourself. You can tell them because you cooked, don't worry about the dishes, we've got it. But here's what I'll tell you now. The dilemma of the church is people will be locked up in some building somewhere singing to God who is out in their city ministering to the broken but the church doesn't go with him. They'll let go, God go and do all those works in the city through other people but they will sit back in church and relax and they say, oh, you know, I really love you, Lord. It's like that son that says, I love you, Dad. And on a hot day, the father is mowing the lawn and is fixing the garden and the kid does not leave the AC condition, you know, air conditioned room to go help his dad. But he's quick to say, I love you, Dad. No, you have to think again what you say. Why can God be working in and through other people and we're sitting there doing nothing, lazy, and then just claiming that we'll sing him a song and you'll be satisfied? I will just sing him a couple good songs and he should be good. Come on, man. The fastest way (laughs) to experience revelation, wisdom, encounters with the divine. I'm not talking about encounters with the realms of God. It's usually given to those that are active in the field, working together with him, doing what he does. That's the way it usually works. Remember a mighty woman of God in my country that um, shared a story. Um, she used to preach every Sunday. She used to drive around a little beat-up car and go to all these outlying places where preachers don't want to go because there's no honorarium. You know, She used to go to those places and she'd just go preach over the weekend. Well, one particular weekend, she was so tired. She's driving alone at night in Zimbabwean roads. You understand? Gravel in a lot of places and it's just not safe for a woman to be alone out there by herself. It says, all of a sudden, my car just stalled. Not just the engine, but the lights went out. I don't know anything about cars. It says, but as soon as it happened, four guys just showed up on the side of the road. Hey, ma'am, are you okay? Uh, is, is, so they said, oh, no, the car, the car is broken. She says, uh, you know, um, open the hood and we'll, t- we'll take a look. They went in there and, say, and then they just tinkered and said, try again. <laughs> it just starts right up. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, sons. Okay, it's okay. And then they went away. Seven days later, same night, it's the same thing seven days later. Driving on the same road, same thing happened. Car goes out, lights go out, and she tries to start, she cannot. Lord, I need help. Four, the same four guys come up. Same thing they go through. Uh, open, the, open the hood, okay. Um, tinker, tinker, tinker. She says, can you try it again? It starts up again. Then they came to her and said, last week he sent us to you, but we noticed that you didn't recognize who we were. So we asked him if he can send us again. He says, we're the, we're the angels that have been watching over you everywhere you've traveled. And daughter, you need to know you're not alone. So you see, there's some people here that are hungry for an encounter with, 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 with the realms of God, but they do absolutely nothing for the kingdom. They just want to have an experience in their room. Ah, Lord, just show up right here. I just want to see you. Let me tell you this. Divine encounters are put aside for those that are working in the field. There's a special entourage, for example, of security detail that is put on the president, right? Why? Because the more effective you are in the kingdom of God is the same thing, the greater the security that is put around you. I want to encounter God. I want to experience him. What are you doing for the kingdom? If you left today, will the kingdom be negatively affected or will it be business as usual? The safest place you can ever live is a place where you're relevant in what God is doing in your generation. Do something. Felix, I can't preach. I couldn't when I started. I don't know how to do all this. I know how to pray. Why? I can speak. In Shona, for some of you in several languages, brother, I know Hindi, I know Tamil, and I know Malayalam. Okay, good. Pray in any one of those. Pick one. 
but be consequential to what God is doing. And I can tell you this, you never have to pray, Lord, protect me. Your protection is guaranteed. The Lord knows those that are working in his field. He's not a negligent boss. Are we okay? Are you happy? Smile a little, you're making me nervous. I'll take one more. Anybody else? Based on what we've been learning, based on what we covered. Amen. Come on. Mm-hmm. To chaos. There you go. When you say you when you say no to God, you say no to disorder, right? Because the first thing you ever saw God do was establish order. And if you're a student of the Bible, you juxtapose Genesis chapter one with which book? Genesis chapter one is parallel to what? John chapter one. Genesis chapter one, what is he talking about? Creation. John chapter one, what is he talking about? The person. Why? Where darkness is covering people and the light of the, law, of the gospel comes in, who is Jesus Christ. In Genesis, it's the earth covered in chaos, in darkness, and the Lord says, let there be light. So in much the same way, anything that you saw in the Old Testament, you see God establishing order. In the New Testament, you see God establishing order. When a nation or a group of people say no to God, they are saying yes to disorder. But let me tell you this, though, is that more than just waiting, because people sometimes act like God is just waiting to judge and to destroy. God loves people. I don't know how else to emphasize this. God loves people. And if you ever doubt that, because you see, for a lot of people, when they look at the passion of the Christ, how many of you have watched that movie? A lot of people think that the most gore, you know, the most um, heartbreaking thing about the passion of the Christ was the brutal beatings that Christ went through. No. It was not the worst torture any human being has ever faced. The Romans were doing that every single day. In fact, there was one thief on either side of Jesus who had also had the same treatment. It wasn't the brutality of the beating that is the most heartbreaking thing. It was the fact that the perfect son of God, because of the love he had for humanity, said, put all their junk on me. God made him sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. It was the absorbing of every rape, of every disease, AIDS, cancer. It was allowing all that to be imputed upon him. And in a moment, to feel the full trauma of human existence, the true brokenness of humanity, and to do it on our behalf and to pay the price for that. So if you ever doubt that God loves people, what do you process when you view the cross? God loves people. Some people here want to be anointed, but they don't really like people, but they want an anointing. For what? What do you want to be anointed for? I heard some pa- one pastor say, well, ministry would have been good if it weren't for the people. <laughs> if there was no Israel that God loved, there would be no need for a Moses to go and set them free. The only reason why Moses is prominent on the pages of history It's because there was a nation that God loved and he sought a partner that can go and rescue it. That's it. The son of Jesse would have just been another shepherd in a line of many shepherds. What made him special was that there was a nation that God loved and he wanted a leader that could love them back. 
So he found a young boy whose heart over what he was looking after was such that he would leave the 99 to chase after the one that had been grabbed by a lion and a bear. And the Lord says, this young man loves like I love. So I'll raise him to be king over my people. Why? Because I love David and I'm seeking to promote him? No. Because I love Israel and I'm seeking to bless her. God loves people. You learn that secret, you know how to get anointed. A number of years ago, we might as well talk. There's nobody here but us, amen, in Saturday night. And there's going to be a campfire later. So watch this. When I was in Zimbabwe, I used to have a Friday night meeting in um, a place called Sovani. Now, Sovani was a rough place of our little town. When I say rough, some of you think you've, you've seen poverty. Yeah, some of you guys from India, we can, we can talk on the poverty thing. But those of you that were raised in the United States, worst case scenario here is like paradise where I come from. You understand? I'm talking about abject poverty, friends. I'm talking about abject poverty. That was Tovani. So what used to happen is that Friday night, there was a, 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 a non-profit organization called the Family AIDS Care Trust that was actually run by one of the ladies in our church. Her name was Sandy McCleary. So we asked Sandy, said, can I use your building on Friday nights? And all I have is me and my youth and a drum. So we'll play the drum and sing some songs. If people showed up, we'll preach to whoever shows up. At that time, I was like, just let me loose on them. And then we'll take an altar call, pray for them, and send them home. Or the Friday night began, we'll go beat up our drum, singing our songs. Jesu idombo, Jesu idombo. And we're singing our songs, and people in the neighborhood would come in. And I'll preach like a crazy man. And then yelling at them, spitting on them. In the name of Jesus Christ, you know, sweat everywhere. All African, right? Then something began to happen. One Friday night, I was working the altar. I think I had 15 people at the altar. And I came to a young man and I was praying for this young man. So I just said, Father, please, whatever he needs in the name of Jesus Christ. And I was about to go to the next person. And a young man came up to me in the church. He says, Pastor Phyllis, can you keep praying for this boy? And I felt the Lord saying, listen to what he's saying. So I said, okay. I keep praying for this guy. I'm five minutes in now. I got other people that need prayer. So I'm ready to go to the next one. And the same guy, his name was Sam Makara. Sam Makara comes back and says, Pastor Felix, can you please keep praying for this kid? I'm like, dude, it's 10 minutes already. I got, you know, but I felt the Lord saying, just keep on praying, right? So in the name of Jesus Christ, whatever his need. And I go, same thing, 15 minutes later, as I'm praying for him, all of a sudden he flares up in a total manifestation. His eyes roll back. His, his, his teeth are bared like fangs and he begins to say, I'm going to kill you. He begins to, he was in a complete demonic trance. And Sam said, I knew there was something on this boy. So we prayed for that thing to be cast out. And as soon as we were casting that thing out, another young lady that he had been involved in physically in the church erupted and she came under demonic trance. So we're praying for her. And at that time, it caused an opening of the dimension of deliverance in my ministry at that time, right? So deliverance begins to break out every Friday. So that on Friday, I used to fast from morning until 4 o'clock. At 4 o'clock, I used to break my fast and eat because most times I did not used to get home until early Saturday morning. Because sometimes it was 15, 20 people on the altar. All of them, some throwing up and some rolling on the floor. Because the reason why there was ripe, poverty was rife in that little area was that witchcraft and the occult was rife. Just about every home, somebody had something, little idol, beads and all of this. So it was just a witchcraft, you know, infested place. So deliverance began to happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm in for a good fight. I like a good fight. So on Friday, I'll be ready, man. I'm like, hey, in the name of Jesus, we're going to go tear the devil's kingdom down. And then God confronted me one time as I was praying that have you ever really looked at a person during a manifestation 
No, I was too busy binding the devil. Devil, loose them in the name of Jesus. And the Lord said, let's watch them as they roll on the floor. That's my child. Look at how the enemy strips them of their dignity. That's my, my daughter. That's my son. All of a sudden, I'm like, Whoa. I said, this whole time, you've been asking for people to be, but you've not asked me to set them free without the theatrics, without the manifestations. Why? Because I'll be honest with you, I'll tell you why. Because I felt it was an exposition of power. Oh, because when non-believers came into that congregation on Friday and the, the theatrics began, it's either they left in fear or they stood in fear frozen. And so we were like, you know, yeah, that's how we do. You know, we are anointed. So the Lord says, no, if you truly love my people, why are you praying for people when you are more moved by your hatred of the devil than you are moved by the love for my children? I said, Father, I don't know how to love like you're talking about. Can you give me a love for them? Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you this. What used to take an hour began to take one statement. In the name of Jesus Christ, loose them and let them go. <laughs> Done. Sometimes they'll just shake a little, gone. Sometimes there'll be no manifestation, no falling on the floor, no rolling on the floor. Whoosh, 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 whoosh. I'll be home at 11. Back in the day, 8 in the morning, I'll be arriving home. After a night of sweating in the name of Jesus, come out, come out, in Jesus' name, come out. If I was Malayali, I'd have been, I'd have been throwing everything at him. That's when I learned that the key to an anointing is love. There are so many of us here that say, Lord, I want to walk in healing. But whenever you hear that somebody is sick, you never volunteer to pray for them. But you want to be anointed though. Miracle signs and wonders. Love is the key, man. You love people, God will put an anointing on a donkey that loves people. You understand? Are we happy? All right, cool. <laughs> That was for free. Amen. I'm charging for the rest. <laughs> I actually said a lot tonight. If you were listening, you actually got a lot. Because some of this was, took years to learn. And some of my mentors and other people that had been under had never taught us that. We learned it the hard way. That the way to sharpen the anointing is to love. Love is the key. Love is the key. Some of you, if I was to ask you to come and say something to God's people right now, I'm afraid to talk. You know, you're not afraid. You just don't love enough. Because trust me, when you love enough and you know that what you're about to share can radically change somebody's life, you bypass your own shyness. That's why the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Love is the key. Amen. If you notice, you know, the Lord says, Simon, hey, Son, the devil has desired to sift you as wheat. Meaning the devil wants to expose you. But I've prayed for you. That your faith may be strong. So when you, when, when you are converted, that means that when you come back, meaning what? You're going to fall. I want you to help your brothers. And then Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. And the Lord says, okay, let me break it down to you. You're going to deny me. Me? I'll never do that. Me? I'm not the denying type. I'm I'm with you for it. And the Lord says, no, son. No, no, no. What Jesus was just saying to his boy was this. As I'm looking at the content of your love, I can tell that if the conditions were bad enough, you would look at me in my eye and say, I've never seen him before. 
Did Peter know that? No. He said, no, but I love you. I, I'll never do that to you. He says, in fact, I'll tell you how it's going to happen. Before the rooster crows once, you'll have denied me three times. Peter argued with Jesus, convinced because he was a good Indian Pentecostal. I was convinced. I'll never do anything like that. Me? Nah. Don't ever say that to me. No. Next day, Jesus is arrested. And Peter, in spite of his better intentions, runs away. And then I'm sure he remembered, what am I doing? Why am I running for my savior? Let me get close to where he is. Comes a bit close. And a servant girl approaches him and says, sir, weren't you one of his disciples? And what does Peter say? One of whose disciples? That man in chains that they just arrested, weren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, I don't know the guy. Nah, I don't know him. I don't know that one. I'm sure I've seen you with him. I don't know the man. When she asked him the third time, the book of Luke said he began to curse. You know, Luke was actually uh, one of Peter's disciples. So Peter must have told Luke, write everything. Don't, don't, don't miss anything. You know, tell them how bad I really got. I began to curse. I don't blinkety know this blinkety guy. And then the rooster crows. And when the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross by himself, just the women, the Marys and his mother were the ones at the base of the cross. And one disciple that used to follow him from a distance, Joseph of Arimathea, everybody else ran for their lives. Three days later, he resurrects from the grave. One of the first people he went looking for was Peter. And he fixes him a breakfast. Amen. Fish curry. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. He says, children, have you caught anything? Lord, we've caught nothing. He says, throw your nets on the other side. Peter recognizes that voice. He knows who it is. Now he feels like I'm not worthy comes out the boat and meets with Jesus and here's the key to ministry that Jesus was about to hand to Peter. He didn't say, why did you deny me? I'm not going to talk about denial. He didn't say, why were you afraid? He never talked about fear. He just asked him a simple question. Do you love me? Lord, you know about that, about what? You know that denial? No, we're not talking about that. I have a simple question for you. Do you love me? Yeah. Then what does the Lord say? Write me a song. I love to love you, oh Lord, my God. No, he says, nah, 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 I'm, I'm good on songs. The angels, woo, they're amazing. <laughs> like this one other angel sings like all, yeah, the entire range is just, so I'm, I'm good on songs right now. What do you want me to do, Lord, write a book? What do you want me to do? I want you to take care of my people. Take care of my sheep. That's all you need to do to let me know you love me. It's not this. Take care of my children. And they keep eating. They're spitting out the bones. You know. Throwing in some mango pickle. And says, son, do you love me? He says, Lord, I... Yes, I do, but the love I have is phileo. It's not agape. He says, so he's looking, how do I respond? Take care of my people. That's all I need from you. Just look after my people. They're important to me. Third time, Simon, do you love me? But this time he's broken. Oh, Lord, only you know. Only you know. Exactly. 
Look after my sheep. Look after my lambs. Look after my people. If you can do that, that's all I need to know. That is the greatest statement of love you can ever give me. More than the song or the books you write. More than what you preach on national TV. On TBN. I don't care about that. All I care about is if, I, if you say you love me, you look. That's why I just want to share this with some of us because here's the thing. When you love people, you draw an anointing because the anointing is there. You know, theologians sometimes mess me up, man. Theologians will argue. The, the cessationists, for example, they'll argue that, well, you know, the miracles were only for the establishment of the church. You know, that's why uh, they ended with the apostolic era because uh, they were just to identify who the apostles were. No, the miracles were there because of what? Because God had compassion on the broken, on the sick and the dying that had nobody to help him. It was love that drove Christ to do the miraculous. It was what made him walk on water. Why? Because people he loved were in the middle of a crisis. So he walked on the water to not show off but to show love. So we want the miraculous but we don't love our city. That's why we pray and pray and pray and nothing miraculous happens. When you care about people, when you care about the sick, that's when you're like, Lord, use these hands, please. When you care about those that are bound, that's when you say, Father, I want to do like Christ said, that if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom must... Do you know there's some people that there's no medication that can help them? They are bound by something spiritual. And we are a church age that has become comfortable with no power. Because we try and counsel things we're supposed to cast out. If you're arguing with me that the miraculous ended in the, in the first century, it's an argument that is theological, but there's no real basis in biblical truth. The Lord healed and performed miracles because he cared. A leper came to Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, not if you are savior, if you are willing, if you desire to do so, you can make me clean. And what does the Lord say? I'm savior? No. He says, I am willing. Be thou cleansed. Ah, that's why I love Jesus, man. That little old lady in the book of Mark, that little old lady that was not even supposed to be in public, the girl had been bleeding for 12 years. So for 12 years, she could not enter a synagogue, she could not enter into a church service in the temple because she was considered still going through a cycle, therefore not allowed in the presence of, quote-unquote, the priesthood. So she looked at the priesthood and said, yeah, I, I, I think those guys won't accept me until the day she saw Jesus. Something about him must have inspired her to think that, I, I don't know, but I think this one will accept me. This one will not be offended if I touch the hem of his garment. And no more priest would have been, how dare you contaminate me? Now I cannot go and make an offering in the temple and I have to go through a cleansing ritual. But when she saw Jesus, something about his heart assured her, go ahead and touch the hem of my garment, it's okay. But Lord, I'm filthy. Lord, I got blood stains on my skirt. It's okay. Lord, I'm not even allowed to be in public. Daughter, it's okay. And she touched the hem of his garment and he did not accuse her. He just said, who touched me? And the disciple says, Everybody says, no, no. This was special. For I felt virtue. Do you know what virtue is? Virtue is not power. Virtue is dignity. It's powerful dignity. She literally drew the virtue that she had led for 12 years. The power that dignified her left Christ to take care of her. That's how much love is in him. He does not have to turn around to heal you. 
And we want to be anointed. Love people. Ah, but they're black. Love us. Please love the blacks. We are awesome people. A little loud. I'll give you that. A little demonstrative. Yeah. Because in one of our churches, the service is not over until some uncle attempts to do a somersault. And a few of them ever stick the landing, by the way. You know, so I've been in services, man, where an uncle begins to do this during praise and worship, and we're like, oh, here, here we go, here we go. He's going to break his tailbone. And then he tries a somersault and does not stick the landing, and it's okay. Welcome to Africa. God is not offended by us, so love us. Well, you know, it's them brown people and all that curry. Yeah, we love you and love your food. I saw them white people. You know, you probably all voted for Trump. <laughs> yeah, I love you. And love me too. Let's love one another. Why? In the house of God, that's the marker. If we love one another, the anointing is there. The power of God is there. Here's what happens. People have been asking, I've heard this, I've been in church long enough to hear people say, Hey, Pastor Felix, where is the power? And I always look at them and say, If you can first tell me, where is the love? Because wherever the love went, that's where the power went. The early church were the first to establish orphanages in Rome. They began, you know that in Rome you could abandon your kids if they made you emotionally distraught. Like literally there was hills you could legally just drop off a child and let them die. And these Christians were the poorest citizens of the Roman Empire. But they used to go to those hills and collect those kids and raise them as their own. That's why the miraculous used to flow in the early church. It wasn't because the preaching was any better than today. It was because the love was still fresh from the cross. You ask me where the miracles are, I have a simple question for you. Where is the love? Now that we know that, I have a bit of an assignment for tonight. It will take 20 minutes and then we'll be done. I am just hoping though. That the church becomes who we're supposed to be. And that we reassume the identity that God had created for us to walk in. I need you to hear me good. There is a battle that takes place in regards to any activity on this planet. This battle is older than all of us here. It's an ancient battle. This battle actually began before our first parent was created. Adam did not exist in a utopia in the Garden of Eden. That's why the language in the beginning of the text has a militant edge to it. It's a language of dominion. It's a language that involves subduing. You don't dominate and subdue a perfect environment. You just go tiptoeing to the tulips and everybody's happy. But the Lord began to imply to Adam when he created him that children, I want you to take dominion. The reason why God was saying that was that the mystery of iniquity had already fallen. There was already an existing enemy that hated God and was about to take his battle to the object of God's love, which is the creation of mankind. From the first day that humanity has been on this planet, there's been a battle brewing because Lucifer had already fallen. So when you look at the book of Genesis chapter 1, 
And again, I just want us to embrace our identity. We talked about love, right? Love is an integral part of our identity, but I want us to know who we are in God. It's important that we know. So we know that we are in a fight and we know how to posture ourselves in a fight. One of the worst things you can ever do is when you are in a fight and your hands are in your pockets, acting like you are watching tennis, right? You're in the middle of a fight and you're just like, because you'll get hit hard and then you'll think it's strange that you just got hit. When you're in a fight, you have to posture yourself in a battle stance. Amen. So you have to know what's going on. Now watch this. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, again, we started there. I I would like to begin there. Thank you, Father. Verse 26. And God said, let us make man. That term man is not male. The term Adam is the term for the species. It means mankind. Let us make mankind in our image and according to our likeness. And then let them have dominion. So already there's a call to dominion. Amen. That's why I told you. There's never a need for a call to dominion in a perfect environment. Everything is just naturally subdued. But no, the Lord says, let them have dominion over what? Over the the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now notice this, dominion was given not to the male, dominion was given in a corporate setting. He didn't say let him have dominion. He said let them have dominion. Amen. So ladies, we we need to take you along this journey of dominion. You can't be left behind. And in fact, you'll find out that when the Lord, it was time for the Lord to curse the serpent, he didn't say I'll put the man after you. He says I'm going to create enmity between you and the woman. That's going to be your curse. Because that girl will know how to drive her. She'll, She'll know how to put you in your place. That's why there's, a, there's a, a prayer anointing that the women have that might be actually at a greater dimension than the men have. Most prayer meetings that you'll ever attend are mainly dominated by women. There's a reason. You ladies are created for warfare. You know how to fight. Amen. You know how to press through pain to get something good come out. Are we okay? Yeah, so the time, yeah, in more ways than one. Amen. In more ways than one. So God blessed them and God said, be fruitful. That term fruitful, it it does not mean just produce a bunch of kids. The term fruitful actually implies that produce out of your life that which can sustain other things. Because the fruit of, of a tree is what the tree gifts. You understand? The apple tree does not eat apples. If you ever saw an apple tree eating apples, you'll be justifiably freaked out. Amen? Because that's not normal. Oh, I'm just like, I'm just having an apple. I'm not, apple tree, you don't do that. What does the apple, the apple tree works hard to produce fruit and it gives it to the birds and say, go ahead and have something to eat. But while you have something to eat, go drop my seed somewhere far away so that I can have a legacy far away from where I'm rooted. Fruitfulness has got to do, is your life benefiting somebody else? The Lord has encoded your life to be of benefit to others. And then he says, be fruitful. That term multiply is again the Hebrew term rabah. Rabah does not mean just multiply numerically. It means that what? Grow in scope. It means that whatever you are today, you have the capacity to grow. Amen. You can't be the same size spiritually all the days of your life. Grow! That's why a shepherd boy can become a king. Why? Because he grew. That's why it is said of John the Baptist, it is said of Samson, it is said of Samuel, it is said of Jesus. And the child grew in wisdom and stature 
and in favor with God and men. That's what a bar. He grew. He expanded. Are we okay? All right, cool. Reading right along. Then he says, fill the earth. Now, fill the earth has got to do influence. Let your influence touch every nook and cranny. Let your influence infiltrate every area of creation. Fill the earth. And then he said, subdue. That term subdue means stamp on with the implication that you must leave a mark. Don't just come on the planet and then just exit and nobody ever knows you were here. Leave a mark. That mark could be one life that you affect for the gospel. Leave a mark. It's the original assignment for all of us. Don't come walking through a territory and not leave something behind that gives evidence that you've walked that way before. If you ever walked in the middle of the woods and all of a sudden you see a little trail, what is that a sign of? You're not the first person there. What does that mean? It means long before you ever showed up, somebody had carved a path. He had walked that way before. That's their method of subduing, of stamping on a piece of ground until they leave a mark. Are we okay? Okay, reading right along. <laughs> now, the reason why this is important, this language is heavy, is because our identity was this, was that there was going to be a battle that is waged against humanity, and we had to be positioned to fight back. This is heavy language. Don't have dominion. Subdue. Grow. Be fruitful. Why would I need to do that in a perfect environment? Because there is an opposing force that exists. And we begin to find out the opposing force in Genesis chapter 3. If we can just turn there again real quick. I hope I'm not boring you. Amen. I hope you're learning something. Watch this in Genesis chapter 3. Chapter three. Here is the first line of battle which you must understand. And I know because you've been praying for revival, pastor, it's absolutely essential that you know as well that there's a dimension of spiritual warfare that needs to be fought over your city. Jesus Christ put it like this in Matthew chapter 12, that you cannot walk into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless the strong man is bound. Yonge Cho, who's uh, David Yonge Cho, used to be Paul Yonge Cho, understood what that scripture meant. And that's why whenever he sent out missionaries from South Korea into Japan, their first assignment was a prayer assignment to bind the principalities over the city. And when they felt that they had sufficiently bound them, plant a church, and the church would grow. So there was a warfare component that was attached to the church planting effort. I want to deal with warfare in this instance from an area that you may not think that warfare exists, but that's actually where the main part of the battle takes place. God help me to unpack this in Jesus' name. Now watch this. It says uh, from verse 3, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty. What was he? More crafty. Was he stronger? No. There was no evidence of strength. There was, an ev- there was evidence of cunning, trickery. Amen. So the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And so now watch what the enemy does. This is the way that spiritual warfare takes place. And as long as confusion reigns in this area, you will always be on the receiving end of demonic attack. What does he do? He goes to the woman and he says, um, hey, uh, so did God say you cannot eat of every tree of the garden? Now if you read chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, you will know that the Lord had instructed Adam that what? He says you can eat of every tree in the garden. 
except from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you shall eat of that tree, here's what heaven says, you will surely die. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So what does the enemy do? The enemy understands that the key to men's living in continuous victory is as long as they are under the obedience of the ordinance of God. But the only way I can get to weaken them so I can overcome them and take over their inheritance is not if I wrestle with them face to face because they are too close to God, they will overcome me. Even then, he was afraid of a direct confrontation with mankind. So what does he resort to? He resorts to tricks. So now, you know, Eve caught up in wordplay. What is wordplay? He takes what God says and perverts it. And he says, uh, um, so, um, so did God say you cannot eat of every tree in the garden? It's exactly the opposite of what God said. Why? Because God said what? You can eat of every tree in the garden. Except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the midst of the garden. So he says, uh, so did God say you cannot eat of every tree? And then Eve rightly says, no, no, no. The Lord says we can eat of every tree. We're good. Except the tree that is in the midst of the garden. We shall not eat of it. And then she kind of added a little something. You know, she's an auntie. She's going to throw a little extra. It says, uh, and we cannot touch it. That was her little bit of extra. And then now here's what the enemy then does. He directly contradicts the word of God. But he does it by baiting humanity on the issue which is the battleground for spiritual warfare. It's the issue of identity. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you shall eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what is he trying to sell them? What is he selling them? Likeness with God. But what do they already own? likeness with God. Why? Because God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. So the attack is always to cause doubt in the place of your true identity. If the enemy can just sow a little doubt on your identity, you will naturally grapple in other places to find your identity. Then he'll offer you something. If you can just do this, then your identity problem will be solved. So imagine this. The only entity that God ever created that he gifted with his likeness as a gift. The enemy made them doubt who they were. And made them feel like they needed to disobey God just so they became, become who they already were. That's the place where the trickery takes place. The battle has always been the battle of identity. And I can tell you right now, there are many of you that have been serving God for a number and you don't really know who you are. You don't know who you are in God. You don't know your identity in God. And because there's a confusion in regards to your identity, you are operating at the level that you're convinced of based on who you are. Oh, God help me. So he tricks them oh, by damaging an aspect of the very first gift they ever got, Suresh. The first thing that God ever gave them was likeness with God. And the devil came in tempered with that and then convinced them, you need to do other things to become like him. Every bit of warfare that you will find is steeped on the battlefront of identity. Every. 
Because when you know who you are in God, the enemy knows right away that he's lost. Begging the question, therefore, but who are you in God? You go through scripture, that's when you find out the power of divine identity. It's a powerful thing. Absolutely powerful thing. Identity in the old covenant was wrapped up in a name, right? Your identity was wrapped up in your name. Your name had to do with your calling. Ah, That's why you find a man like Moshe or Moses. Because what, what happened? At birth, he was drawn out of the water. So his name is called what? To draw out. And what was his job in his ministry? To draw out what? The children of Israel from the, from the, from, from the cesspool of, of slavery into the place of promise. Identity matters to God. There are certain conclusions you've made about who you are based on ethnicity. I came from a background where I was convinced from the time I was young, because you're black, because you're African, you're less than. It was hammered into me by the system I was raised under. I had to learn how to shake that thing off to enable myself to see myself as somebody that God can use. And I can tell you this, one of the most aggressive battles I've ever had to fight is the battle to just feel qualified to do whatever it is that God has called me to do. And it had nothing to do with race as much as it had to do with the house that we came from. I was born from my grandparents' place on my father's side. They were steeped in the occult. Deep, deep, deep in the occult. The only Christian side of my family was on my, on my, on my, on my, on my, my mother's side. But she got killed when I was six, five, six years old. In the most brutal way possible. By the time we buried my grandmother, she was in two pieces. They fired a, a, from a point-blank range and hit her with a high-powered military weapon, separated it in two. So now growing up, now you're fumbling. You don't know. All you know is that I'm a chivandire. But what does it mean? It, it means I'm coming from a murderer's bloodline. And all of a sudden, you meet the Savior. And he confronts your identity and says, you can be a son I can use. And I say, Father, I don't understand coming from where I come from. One of the greatest battles I've ever faced in my life was the battle of just understanding that as a child of God, God can actually use me. And that he can use me to speak to people more educated than me. He can use me to speak to people of a different race. He can use me to speak to people that I can be on stage with some people that are three, four times, you know, th three times my age, maybe twice my age, that have, got, that, that have been in the ministry for as long as I've been alive. I've never felt less than because the Lord began to deal with the issue of identity. That when it comes to kingdom work, I have to plug into sonship, into an eternal identity to be effective. I cannot re reference my bloodline. I cannot do it. I cannot reference my Africanness, my Chivandiraness. I cannot reference my little bit of life experience. I have to plug into a bloodline that is older than me. It's older than my father. It's older than my grandfather. I have to plug into my supernatural identity to be effective. And a lot of people don't know how to do that. They don't know how to access the gift of the identity that is found in God, locked and safe and secure in God. It's an issue of identity. Ah. So you find in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord approaches the man in all ancient Mesopotamia. His name is Abram. His wife's name is Sarai. Sarai means princess. Abram just means, I, mean, I think it means, um, there's, there's an attachment to it. It's father, but not just father. It's what? Torah. No, I'm talking about Abram himself. 
Abraham just doesn't mean father. It means something father. It means what? Exalted father. Thank you. That's exactly right. Abraham means exalted father. So the Lord goes and finds a man called an exalted father. And his wife is named Princess Sarai. And the Lord makes them a profound promise. He says, listen, um, you know, my son and my daughter, I'm, I, I'm going to, if you leave your father's house and go to where I send you, I will make you literally the father of many nations. I will raise you until your children are like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens. The only problem with this particular couple is that they are childless. Not for lack of effort. They've been trying. They have succeeded in many, many areas, but they failed in the one area that was that significant. And that's the area that God pointed as being the core of their calling. That your calling is about the children you shall bear. And they say, but Father, we have no children. He says, it's okay. So the Lord approaches him in Genesis chapter 12, revisits him in Genesis chapter 15, and the Lord says, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. He says, Lord, what shall I do to fulfill? He says, bring me uh, you know, a heifer, bring me some animals, and let's cut covenant. The Lord cuts covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 15. But still nothing happened. No child shows up. The Lord waits in Genesis chapter 17 until Abram is 99 years old. And then the Lord comes to Abram and he makes some promises. Let's see if we can find that. Genesis chapter 17. Are you guys doing okay? All right, cool. Watch this. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, I am God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. He says, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between you and me and multiply you greatly. And Abraham fell on his face. And God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called Abraham. So what the Lord did to Abraham was this. He says, you've known yourself one way, but in heaven you've been known another way. So today, there shall be the convergence between what we've always known about you and what you've always known about yourself. So the Lord broke his name in half and he placed the, the Ruach, the breath of God, whoosh the H right in the middle of his name. He says, now your identity has shifted and is aligned with your calling. Because you see, in heaven, we did not know you as exalted father. In heaven, we knew you as a father of a multitude. Because that's what Abraham means. So now you need to shift to see yourself according to your heavenly identity. That's why the Lord had to break his name and place the H. Why? You cannot produce above the perception of the identity that you hold. Can't do it. I'll challenge you with this. You know, we love to sing, we love the Amazing Grace song. But for some of us, we're still stuck on the wretch, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. They say they're wretch like me. No, the wretch got saved. The instant the wretch got saved, it wasn't a wretch anymore. There was a shift in identity. How about I'm just embracing the wretch? Yeah, exactly. That's why you're acting like one. Your identity matters to God. The Lord confronted the father of the faith, Abraham, shifted his identity by dealing with his name, broke his name in half and put the rock of God. And from the shift of identity, it was the next chapter that the promise was released. It was exactly a year from 99, he had no child. By the time he turned 100, Isaac was born. The son called laughter. How? Shifting identity, breakthrough. What was the identity shifting from? From what you knew about yourself naturally. To what heaven has always known about you. When the Lord aligned heaven's vision for you and, and, and what you've known about your life, when those things whoosh, were aligned, the promise of God, it made Abraham and, and, and Sarah fertile. Are we okay? 
Oh, you guys know this story, man. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Because I can tell you this. God did not allow them to name Isaac. He gave Isaac the name. He says, and you, you shall have a son from a year from now, and you shall call his name Isaac. Isaac means what? It means laughter. Mean, meaning why? For this kid, he's going to be a joyful kid. Ah, stuff will just happen to him just because. You have to leave a drought to go and succeed. I'll bless him in the middle of a drought. It's the boy called laughter. Good things happen to him in a drought. The Lord says, hey, Isaac, yes, sir. Is there a drought? It's bad. Is there a famine? It's bad. Go sow some seed. But, 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 go and do it. And in the same year when everybody was complaining, Isaac was like Wilson Muchena that I told you earlier today. He's out there harvesting a hundredfold in the middle of a drought. Why? Because his identity was, you're the child of Abraham's delight. You're the child called laughter. How did Isaac get his wife? Did he fast and pray? Did he go and negotiate with crooks like Laban? No, he didn't. How did he get his wife? The Bible says, and Isaac was in the field meditating. And he looked up. And the camels that brought Rebecca were there. Oh, there she is. How lovely. Hallelujah. Easy. Why? Because the Lord says, because your father struggled to get you. I will make your life simple. You're the child called laughter. It's okay. Then Isaac made a mistake that took years to correct. Because when his wife was pregnant, she had a troubled pregnancy. And she inquired of the Lord and says, Lord, I feel a battle in my womb. And the Lord says, that's because there are two nations in your womb. And the two people shall come out from you. He says, one shall be stronger than the other. And he said, the older shall serve the younger. That was the word of God. Promising what? Promising that the child that comes out last shall be the leader of the family. But what happened when Esau was born? He was a hairy little kid. You know, he was born already looking like, you know, he was ready for college. You know, <laughs> looking like he needed a shave. The kid was just covered as a ball of hair. <laughs> and as he was coming out the womb, his little brother, I believe, because of the sense of the call of God in his life that knew that he was by calling the leader of the home, grabbed his brother by the heel. And then Isaac looked at that and he said, Ha, little hill catcher. Yeah, you little crook, you. You see what he did? Yeah, he tried to grab his brother's heel. He's trying to trip his little brother. So he named, he labeled his son from the very first thing the boy ever did. And he said, you're a hill catcher. You know what that meant? It means you're, you're, you're a deceiver. You are one who, in order for you to get ahead, you have to trip somebody else up. And that label haunted that boy for a very long time. Knowing that the calling is in my life because I'm sure his mother told him, son, when I was pregnant, the Lord told me you are the leader of the family. That's your calling. Your brother is just older by age, but I know that you're the leader of the family. Feeling it in his spirit. But whenever his father looked at him, he always saw him as the hill catcher. Hey, little hill catcher, you little crook, come over here. Yeah, um, yeah go and get me some papadam. He goes out there and he brings it in. For years, he wrestled 
with the identity of a hill catcher, even though he was called to great things. So heaven saw him one way, but daddy saw him another way. And based on the first thing he ever did, put a label on him, and he struggled. Ah, when you begin to read a little bit further, um, here's my Bible. What's so heartbreaking about this boy's life? I, I, you know, I identify with Jacob more than I identify with anybody else because I have identified with, that, with, the, with, with what he went through. The struggle to have heaven show you who you really are. And only then, when that was solved, was the ministry released out of my life. So I identify with Jacob probably. That's why I preach about him more than I preach about any other guy in the Bible outside of David and Moses. Because I identify with the, with the power of mistaken identity. When you look at Genesis chapter 27, I'll give you the story. Right around verse 18. His mother comes to him and says, son, your father is about, the, the father called laughter is about to die. And I have a feeling that because he's playing favorites in the family, he loves the older son, he's going to give the blessing to the wrong son. Hurry up and do exactly as I tell you. I want you to go and get a young goat and, and I'll cook, you know, we'll prepare a meal for your father. In the meantime, I want you to wear the skins of that young goat and I want you to wear your brother's clothes and go present yourself to your father. So Isaac was beginning to grow blind because of age. And Jacob walked in and said, Dad, I brought the food you said. Because, you see, Isaac had just told Esau, Son, the blessing I have to give, I'm about to release. So I want you to go and catch some game because he was an outdoorsy guy, hunter, you know? Daniel Booney type of guy. He says, I want you to go out there and go catch me some game and prepare it the way I like it. Because after I eat it and my heart is rejoicing, I'm going to release a blessing. And if I release that blessing, it's going to stick. So Esau was out hunting to fulfill his brother. And Jacob showed up and says, Dad, and his father asked him, who are you? He says, I'm Esau. He says, the voice sounds like Jacob. Come over here. So he comes close and he hugs him, smells his clothes. He says, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the smell is the smell of Esau. So watch this. He says, who are you, son? And he identified himself as someone else. He said, my name is Esau. There are a lot of people, even some of you that are here, that feel you have to wear some kind of a mask in order for you to be accepted. Because you just wonder, if people really knew me by who I am, they would reject me. So you feel you've always got to show up as something else. But I'm telling you this, is that your breakthrough is in the true identity that God has made you to be. It's more than enough for God to fulfill great things based on who he made. You don't have to try and be like someone else. You don't have to sing like so-and-so, preach like so-and-so, and try. You don't have to ever pretend to be anything other than who you are. Because if you don't solve identity issues, in Christendom sometimes we have Christian heroes, and everybody aspires to be like them. And some of these individuals, if you truly knew them, you would never want to be like them. No, God made you unique, you see. So when the father asked, he says what? Who are you? He says, I'm Esau. I'm your son. And then Isaac released a blessing. But when you look at what he blessed Jacob with, you find out very quickly, none of those blessings ever stuck on Jacob. He still struggled. Even after his father, you know, he left his father's house with nothing but the clothes on his back. And he went to, to go and find himself a wife after that blessing. Ended up in the house of Laban. Was crooked to pay seven years for what his daddy got for free. 
because of that identity of the struggler. Others, you know, have it easy. For you, it's a little bit more of a struggle. Because that was a label that was put on him. If you don't solve your identity crisis, if you don't even understand that part of the ploy of the enemy is to get you mislabeled, is to help you misunderstand who you really are in God. Because if there's a confusion there, the battle is half won. The devil does not have to trip you up. You just have to have a messed up identity. And you'll trip yourself up time and time again. You want to talk about spiritual warfare? It is rooted in identity. Ah, we can fast track. Then there came a time where finally heaven wants to confront this boy and he's found in chapter 32. You guys know the story, right? What happens in this story? Jacob is in some place somewhere. He struggled all his life. It was always a little bit harder for him than for his siblings. It just was, he needed a little bit more work to get what others just seemed to be easy for them because it was rooted in the way that his father saw him and also rooted in the way he saw himself. And then the Lord appears in an angel of the Lord and begins to wrestle with Jacob. They wrestle all night. Struggle, struggle, struggle. The day is about to break. And the angel of the Lord says, release me for the day is breaking. Because Jacob is holding on. And Jacob says, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. Well, wasn't your father's blessing enough? It never landed on me. Why? Because it's not who I am. He thought he, he spoke that blessing for a man called Esau. That's not my name. So it never stuck. I still struggled after the man blessed me. I'm still struggling right now. So what my father said I am is not enough. I will not let you go until you bless me. And what does the Lord say? What's your name? What does that mean? Identify yourself. Why? Because the last time you heard that question, you said you were someone else. And heaven heard you. The last time you were asked to identify yourself, you said your name was Esau. You want a blessing today? Yes, sir. Tell me what's your name. Finally, he's confronted. And he says, I'm the heel catcher. I'm Jacob. Good. Now that you've faced your identity, let me show you what we always thought about you. Never a single day did we see you as a heel catcher? Heaven had always identified you as a prince with God. But my father, but your father what? It's your heavenly father that matters. It's how he sees you that matters. So what happens? His earthly identity and here heaven takes the heavenly identity and like a broken limb, if you've ever seen someone with a broken bone getting set, push, the bone is, is set. Ah! He feels the pain. But finally, he stands up aligned with heaven's identity. I'm not a hill catcher. I've never been a hill catcher. My dad judged me on the first thing I ever did. Heaven has always seen me as a prince with God. Father, I accept heaven's identity. From that moment, <laughs> alignment. Your identity matters, my friend. Are we okay? Whatever battle you're fighting right now is rooted in your identity. Spiritual warfare that rages against the church is because the church doesn't know who they are. They, they see themselves as their individuals. They identify themselves with their ethnic group. They don't even identify themselves with who they are spiritually. That's why they don't walk in the power of the true identity of the church. We've got to solve that identity crisis. Are we okay? 
I take a few more minutes? When you look at Moses, Moses is a young man that was working with him. Exodus, uh, Numbers chapter 13 and verse 16. The name that he was given is the name Oshia or the name Hosea. And Moses changed his name to Joshua. That name Joshua was given by Moses. It wasn't given by Joshua's parents. Because the Lord identified that this one is going to accomplish what I have not accomplished. So this one shall be given the name Deliverer. Because a true Deliverer is one who takes people into the promise. So instead of calling his name Salvation, he switched his name to Jehovah is my Deliverer. Because that was going to be his ministry. But it took a man of God seeing the identity of this young man and saying, you need a name change, boy. You were mislabeled at birth. That's not who you are. You are Joshua. You fast track. You come into the New Testament. And that's where you find. Zechariah was told what to name John. Call him Han or Johannes. Why? Because it means that Yahweh is gracious. Because he shall be the preacher that shall usher in the season of grace. He could not go to Zechariah and say, what do you think you should name him? No, I don't care. You don't mislabel this boy. You give him the right name right off the bat. And that's why the Lord didn't say to, to, to Mary, oh, whatever you want to name him is okay. He says, no. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? You shall not mislabel my son. Because his identity is directly tied to his calling. That's the way it's always been. The battle is in the issue of identity. Are we okay? God help me. You see, Jacob learned the lesson well, right? And how we know that Jacob learned the lesson well was that in the time that, 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 that uh, Rachel was giving birth to their last born, Rachel is, is, was carrying Benjamin. Benjamin was a troubled pregnancy. So literally the birth of Benjamin is what killed Rachel. She bled out from the complications of that birth. So when she was told, as she was bleeding out and dying, she was told, you have given birth to a boy. So you know what Rachel says? You shall call his name Benoni. Which means what? The son of my sorrow. And when Jacob heard that, he said, no! He shall not be called Benoni. You shall call his name Benjamin or Benjamin. Which means what? The son of my strength. I know what it's like to carry the burden of a mislabel. You don't put that on my son. His name shall not be Benoni. He's not the son of my sorrow. His name shall be Benjamin. He's the son of my right hand, meaning the son of my strength. That's why the Benjamites were known to be some of the greatest warriors in Israel. Twice in the time of the judges, they took Judges chapter 1 and Judges chapter 18. The Benjamites took the whole nation to war and the nation struggled to win against Benjamin. Why? Because it says that the faces of the men of Benjamin were like the faces of lions. It says that the Benjamites could use the left hand and the right hand with equal competence. They were ambidextrous warriors. A fearsome army. And that's why the first king of the nation of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul, the son of Kish, who was a mighty man of valor. The line of Benjamin. Jacob right there says, change my son's identity. You're not the son of my sorrow, boy. You're the son of my strength. And he exhibited strength all the days of his life. So what am I asking us? I don't know what you've concluded about who you are. But for most of us, we don't even know what it means to carry the identity of sonship. We don't know what it means to be a child of God. Right? Is it what, First John 3, 2? Or is it just John, 3 John 2? 
Beloved, now are we the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But this we know, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I don't know that we have come to grips with what it means to carry the identity of sonship. A lot of us don't understand what that means, to be called a son of God. He didn't call you his, his, his stepchild. He says, beloved, now even for you, my sisters, you're not the daughters of the Lord. You are the sons of God. Because that term son does not mean gender. It means inheritance. You are worthy of an inheritance in your father's house. Quios, it's a sign of inheritance. Beloved, now are you the sons of God. It does not yet appear. Meaning that there is no angelic des- designation that is greater than the designation of a child. You're a son of God. That's why even right now, like we said in Romans chapter 8, from verse 30, 31, 32, thereabout, he says, oh, from verse 24, rather, he says, creation is groaning. Do you know why creation is groaning? Because it's looking forward to the manifestation of the sons of God. Because the people that bear the sonship don't understand what it means. They fumble through life like they are beggars. They fumble through life like they are people that are outside of God's favor and outside of God's love. And they just fumble through and get nothing accomplished. And then we wonder why the identity of the church, if the church can just know who we are. First of all, it will cause me to look at my brother who is of a different race and value him as much as I value myself. That's why Paul says, I know no man after the flesh. I know no human being after the flesh. The Lord said to his disciples, I think it was Luke, what, 16 or Matthew 16, you know, who do men say that I am? Why? Because the Lord wanted to know, if you don't accurately identify who I am, if you don't know my true identity, you don't know how to line up with me. So I'm looking to see if you even have a clue about who I am. Because the power in me, ah, look at what happened when Jesus went to his hometown. Do you know what identity they saw him as? Did they see him as a savior in Nazareth? No. What did they see him as? The carpenter's son. So what could he do amongst them? What a carpenter's son could do? They saw the carpenter's son, so he could only have a carpenter's son anointing for them. He can fix you a table, but that's about it. But when he went to other places and Bartimaeus identified him by his lineage and says, you are a son of David. That term son of David was the term that the Israelites used to give for the Messiah. They knew that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So Bartimaeus said, "Um, who is passing by? Luke chapter 18. And they said, oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I know this one. I know his identity. His identity is that he's the son of David. That means what? He's the Messiah. That means that he's the king of Israel. So he says, Jesus, thou son of David. And the Lord says, what? Who is saying that? That blind man. You know who I am? Yes. What do you want from me? I want my sight. You believe I can give you your sight? Yeah. Done. Why? You extract as you identify. So that's why the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, let me see if you guys can pass this quiz. Who do men say that I am? And they will say something, you're John the Baptist. Well, then you know what? You're going to get the John the Baptist anointing. Someone is going to get dunked in water. And that's about it. Some say you're Elijah. Really? Okay. But who do you say that I am? Eleven disciples all get quiet. And the disciple called the reed, Simon, speaks up. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And look what the Lord Jesus Christ says. blessed are you Simon son of Jonah Simon 
the son of the reluctant prophet. The son of the prophet that runs the other way. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed. Why? Because it's revelation. Identity is not something I can teach you. If you have no revelation of it, there is nothing I can do. I can yell and scream, and a year from now, I can preach again, and you still won't get it. Some of you have heard everything I've shared tonight, but it has not shifted your life in a meaningful way because it, not, it has not caused revelation yet. I'm almost done. But watch this. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but your father was in heaven. Now, let me share with you a secret. The whole time that they called you Simon, we never knew you as Simon in heaven. We had an, another name for you. But Lord, I'm Simon. I'm a reed. I'm unstable. I'm easily broken. No. That's not who you are. That's what they called you? Yes, they got it wrong. Do you know who you really are? He says, you're a rock. You are the most stable one in the group. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning you shall lay the foundation of the church. Your sermon shall lay the foundation of an unbreakable church. Father, I'm not stable. I'm the least stable. No, that's what they called you. But we've always known you. But now what I'm about to do is set what your natural identity and causing it to align with what? With your supernatural identity. And as soon as the set takes place, watch what happens. The unstable disciple got up in Acts chapter 2 and he preached like a man possessed. And the church from that one sermon was born. It's always been about identity. Imagine all his life thinking I'm a reed, only to find out by revelation I'm a rock? Me? Stable? Looked in the mirror. Ah, you know what? I do see some stability. <laughs> like when I look this way, the jawline, yeah. I, I, I can see that. My Lord, you're wrecking my brain. How can I be a rock? I'm the goofiest of the lot. No, son, that's what you've always acted like because that's what you always believed. But let me tell you who heaven is. And when the spirit of God comes, he shall breathe upon your identity and cause it to come about. The first preacher of the Gentiles his name was Shaul or Saul. But when he lost out his ministry amongst the Gentiles, he changed his name from Saul. Saul, I think it means called of God or you know, appointed of God, etc. He says, No, you know what? Call me little. The name Paul in the Greek means little. In the Latin it means humble. Call me humble. Why? That's who I choose to be. Why? Because all my life I was a proud Pharisee that was a proud theologian that tapped my chest about how much I knew better than anybody else. But from now on, I'm bowing my knee to heaven. Call me the little one. Call me the humble one. It's okay. Because out of that humility, the Lord will establish churches. And Paul did not get caught up in pride. Why? His identity aligned with heaven's view. And once the identity crisis was solved, the Lord could extract out of a ministry three quarters of the New Testament systemization of, of theology one of the greatest articulations of truth 
He had the greatest revelation of the Lord's Supper, even though he himself was not even there. Because out of his humility, the Lord could what? Humble yourself, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The man called humble became the most exalted of, amongst the apostles. Identity. Who are you? Your natural name is not your calling, right? My natural name, Felix, means So what did I used to do when I used to go to my secular job? I used to go there an hour early to pray for the company. I'll pray for my boss. I'll pray for his family. I'll pray for all the workers that were working under me because I understood that I'm there to be a blessing. Now watch this. When it came time to announce that I'm leaving to join the ministry, all my bosses chartered a plane and flew to the branch I was running to beg me to stay. So God fulfilled that. But more than just that, but the, my direct report, that boss was directly above me, who used to mock my Christianity, he said to me, Felix, I may not do the church thing, but I want my kids to be raised like you were raised in the things of God. Do you know of any church I can send my kids? I sent them to a good pastor friend of mine, who was Pastor Tom Duchel in their town. And before long, Terrence and his wife were attending that church, saved and born again. What? When you enter into the market, you don't have to leave the job you're in to work in the ministry. You are in the ministry there. But if you only enter into that place as a son, for some of you are there just to collect your, your check and then to leave. When was the last time you prayed for your co-workers? When was the last time you prayed for your company? What you think you are there for what? Who do you work for? You don't work for any of the people you think you work for. What does the Bible say? Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your heart as who? As unto God, not as unto men. That's the problem, you see. You think that you're working for people. You don't even understand that when you are there as a son, you are there to be the blessing in that environment. How do I know? Jacob, listen. Jacob entered into the house of Laban as an unpaid worker that was there to work his tail off to earn the bride. But what happened to Laban by the result of Jacob being there? Everything that Laban owned was blessed. So was Jacob blessed for being in Laban's house? No. Laban was blessed for having Jacob there. Joseph went into the house of Potiphar as a slave. He was bought off the slave auction block by Potiphar. So he went in there as a slave. What happened to the house of Potiphar? Everything in the house of Potiphar was blessed. Why? Because he came in there with the identity of the blesser. I'm not the lesser one in here, even though I come as a slave. You just scored the biggest victory because now everything you own is going to be blessed by virtue of my being here. You carry that environment with you. How did Daniel end up in Babylon? He went there in chains amongst the captives when the, when, when, when the temple was, was burnt. And a third of the people were taken into captivity. Daniel literally got into Babylon in chains and rose up to be third in command of one of the greatest empires that has ever been on this earth. The empire of the Babylonians and following also the empire of the Medes and the Persians. How did he accomplish that fit? Because his identity was there to be a blessing. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized that. So did Darius and Cyrus the Great. Do you know who you are? This nation is blessed because you are in this nation. Your city is blessed because bread of life is in that city. But only when you step into your calling as a son, your true identity. So that's why the enemy will label you everything else. 
You're a Malayali Pentecostal. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean I'm only good for the Malayans and the Pentecostals? No, you're a son of God. It means you're good for every group. I'm just a Tamil believer. No, you're not. You're a believer in the son of God, period. I can send you to Africa right now and they'll be blessed to have you there. I can send you to Mexico. They'll be blessed to have you there. Wherever you are sent, you're a blessing because your identity is not limited to your natural pedigree. It's limited to your spiritual pedigree. It means you're blessed everywhere. Who are you? Some of the greatest, and I'm, I'm done. I'm just about done, okay? So worship team, Reggie, if you can get the guitar going slightly. Some of the greatest receptacles of glory are walking around in shame, pastor, when they are containing glory because they don't know who they are. That's why Paul says what? This glory is in jars of clay, in earthen vessels, so that the excellency of it is not of man, but of God. You are a container of glory. You understand? But as long as the enemy can convince you you are less than who you are, you will grovel through life as a beggar, like Mephibosheth. Grovel through life as a crippled beggar, not knowing that you're one of the greatest landowners in Israel because you just did not know who you were. Talk to me about spiritual warfare. It's not about binding and loosing necessarily. It's about you stepping to identity. Because why? You look at the life of Christ. The enemy could only attack Jesus one way. If you're the son of God. Why you, what do you mean if? Well, uh, if you're the son. There's no question. Ah, yeah, but, but, but if you're the son, then, then I don't need to prove anything to you. I know I am the son. No, no, but you know, ah, how do you know? You know, God, you may, if you're the, he tried to confuse the same thing that he did to our original parents, to play mind games with the identity. He tried that with Christ. If you're the son of God, prove it. I don't have to prove a thing to you. I know who I am. Why? I was just reminded at the waters of, of baptism, when I came up from the waters, what did the, the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So why are you playing mind games with my sonship? Because the enemy heard that. And he knew that as long as he thought he was the son, he would dismantle every work of the enemy. So if I can confuse him about his identity, I can win. For this reason was the son of man manifest, that he might what? Spoil, topple, undo the works of the devil. It's all ingrained in identity. Let's all stand, please. You know, when you step into identity, it becomes ageless. The anointing is without age. You understand? Now, when I'm asking an honest question enough to say, hey, if there's some of us here that can honestly say, Father, I know, I know this with my head, but the revelation has not really hit my heart. Please help me. Reveal to me who I am. 
I need a revelation of who I am. If there's anybody there, you can honestly say, I get this information, I know I can give you scripture and verse. But I've not yet had a full revelation of what it even means. But I want my eyes to be open to my identity. I want you to lift up your hands. I want to pray for you. Because again, this cannot be taught. It has got to be revealed. Let me see what I'm praying for. Lift those hands up high. Lift those hands up high. Do you know that the instant you embrace your true identity, the enemy has just lost the greatest battle you'll ever wage against you. No, a number of years ago, I told my mom, I said, mom, do you know that when I get to stand up to preach, in that moment, I'm not just your son. I'm a man of God on a mission. And that, in fact, she then told me, she says, Felix, when I pray for you and you get up to preach, I'm not praying for my son. I'm praying for the man of God in you to fulfill the divine plan of God. I don't see you as my son. I see you as, a, as an anointed vessel of God that is greater than anything I could ever give you. So when my mom prays for me, and I text her every time before I preach, my mom was praying for us tonight as a bunch of people. They don't approach heaven and say, please, Lord, be with my son. They say, Lord, please be with your servant. Because once he enters into the ministry and the call of God in his life, he enters according to his divine identity. Every trauma you've ever experienced in your upbringing, every trauma from the, the home you were raised in, for some of you there's no trauma at all, you were hugged and loved, good for you, God bless you. But for there's some people, any trauma you experienced was to mess with the concept of identity. For some of you, the abuse came in through, through extended family. For some of you, the abuse came in through school. A teacher that just looked at you and called you useless, called you worthless. It was all a battle for your identity. Because if that information stuck, it affects what you can do for God. Am I talking to anybody or am I talking to myself? Lift up your hands up high if you have an identity wrestling that you need to wrestle with. It's a battle you need to win tonight. Let me see your hands up high. Then let's do what, Joseph, what Jacob did. Let's wrestle and say, Father, I won't I want let you go until you tell me who I am. Speak to my heart, to the inner man. Let me know I am your son. I am your child. And let me know what that means, Father, for I don't really get what it means. Reveal it to me. For those that are in business, I want you to come up. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the altar. We'll do the, uh, the whatever um, campfire after. Come on up. If your hand is up, come on up here. I want to pray together with you. Come on up. Walk away from where you are and come to the front. As a statement of faith, let leave where you are right now. Come up to the front. Because some of these things you have to deal with aggressively. I don't know you're telling me you can pray where you are. Don't pray where you are. Come up. Obey. Let the Lord just cause you to make that statement in faith. Because here's what I'm asking the Lord. That for any of you that step forward, that the person who step forward is different than the person who will step away. That the Lord will do his business within your heart. For some of you, you are supposed to be way prosperous than what you are. There are some of you right now that there's been a struggle. Because your identity and your bloodline has always been one of struggle. So you succeed a little, then you make bad decisions and you lose everything. It's rooted in your identity. You understand? 
You look at yourself and you say, hey, at least I'm doing better than the people from the village I grew up in. No, you're supposed to do better than anybody. Don't limit yourself to doing better than the people you were raised with. Come on, let your body language get aggressive. Don't look here. This is not a shameful time. This is the time to do what Jacob did. It's a time to aggressively lay a hold of God and say, I am changing from the depth of my core so that the years that remain in my life are greater than the years that are behind me. My brother, that enemy has fought your health so that you